Hey everybody, Little Pudding Cups, Terry here with another episode of the Alston Pudding Podcast, the little podcast that could. You know, I am <laughs> recording this kind of one. I'm really happy about the Celtics beating the Bucks, going to the Eastern Conference Finals. I believe I'm a big believer in the Celtics and this team specifically. I'm a huge basketball fan. I don't know how often that has come up in this podcast, but I am a big, big basketball fan, huge Celtics fan. This is this is a for life thing for me. So I'm very happy. Go Celtics. Go Elden Ring. I'm on my 215th hour of this fucking playthrough. I'm nowhere close to being done with this game. I suck at this game. It's so fun. I love it. It's one of the best games I've ever played. I'm so bad at it. But I'm I'm chugging away. I'm try, I'm like committed to doing everything. It's like getting it's easier now because I'm kind of just so OP, but it's still super challenging and just like oh, the world is so cool. I I, I want to do an episode just on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am recording this the night before I fly out to Toronto. I'm taking a few days. My birthday is on Saturday, May twenty first. Uh, 5.57 a.m. Waltham, Massachusetts for you moon queens out there who want to <laughs> look up my birth time. Go for it. Whatever. Get crazy with it. But yeah, anyway, it's my birthday. I'm, I'm So I'm going out to Toronto. You know, it's just I've never been. I'm just going to see, do some fun stuff. Hopefully, just I don't really have a plan. I'm just going to be spontaneous. Live it up a little. I haven't, you know, I haven't traveled out of the country since before the pandemic. Figured I'd treat myself. I'm flying back on my birthday. I'm gonna go out dancing with my friends. I want to be around here with my with my friends uh, for that. But yeah, I, you know, I plan on having fun, a raucous good time. Already indulging in some really good eats. Anyway, uh, I should get to this episode. Actually, this week my guest is uh, an author named Craig Lewis. Uh, he lived in Alston. He was an active member of the punk and hardcore scene in Alston in the 90s. So a bit of an old head, but I just want to, before we get into the interview, I just do want to preface it by, you know, giving a bit of a heads up that during the course of the interview, uh, Craig talks about um, homelessness, parental abuse, mental health issues, substance use, you know, in case anyone isn't trying to listen to that, you know, feel free to sit this one out but just want to give that a heads up but it, it's a it's a very uh craig is actually the first non-musician that i've had on the show he's an author he wrote the craig lewis guide to surviving the impossible as well as uh, contributing to a a collection of essays about being in the punk scene and for that latter one he's going to read a piece from so in, in lieu of having music uh Craig is going to read a piece he wrote, which is, you know, feels like a, it's, it's different for the show so far, but I think it's still really cool. It was a really good conversation. Craig's story is really compelling, heartbreaking at times. He talks a lot about loneliness, loneliness of being, you know, a young, a young adult trying to find your way in the world, trying to find a sense of community. And, you know, as much as I wanted to give that, that warning ahead of time, I do think it's a story that'll resonate with some people. Um, and even if it's not something you can personally relate to, I still think it's a, a beautiful discussion to hear. Now it's like some of the issues that 
we talk about. I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself like uh, equipped necessarily with the, the knowledge or the experience to talk about. So those moments, I kind of let's let, let Craig tell his story. But yeah, I think it's a really wonderful episode. And I hope you enjoy. And I hope you I have a greater appreciation for the overall experience of being a human. But yeah, anyway, without further ado, here it is with uh, Craig Lewis. Hello, uh, I am joined this week by author Craig Lewis. How's it going, Craig? It's going great. Good morning, Harry. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. But uh, yeah, so what we were saying right before we started recording is that you're calling from south, you said south of Mexico City? Yeah, let's call it south of Mexico City. That works, yeah. How long have you lived there? It'll be three years in May. So formerly, you were a Boston resident and lived in Austin for many years. And that's sort of, I assume that's sort of how you ended up finding Austin Pudding and getting in touch with me. Yes, I lived in Austin first when I was 18. And then I lived in Austin for at least 10 or so years. And I lived here in Mexico for almost three years. And before that, I spent over a year in Europe with a lot of place to live, trying to find myself and trying to heal myself from some things that happened. And that's an ongoing process. And I found you and I contacted you because I am from Boston and my life in Massachusetts was severed. Just how I ended up here and how ultimately we're going to be talking about one of the books I authored called The Craig Lewis Guide to Survive the Impossible. And what I survived does have roots in Alston. And I'm, I've been sort of feeling desperate a lot in the fact that I want my story to be known mm -hmm. and understood because there's a huge void in my life that I'm trying to rectify. I'm trying to heal. And one of those, one of those, those very painful things is my, my unwanted severing from my past, or I should say the, the undesired severing from the good parts of my past, the not so good parts are, I'm okay to say goodbye to, but Everything just happened at the same time. So here we are. Yeah. Okay. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because I wanted to kind of hear, because you're, you're, you've documented a lot of, uh, a lot about music that was going around in Austin in, you know, the early nineties. I know I was reading your blog post. Ah, see, on, yes, on yes, tree. exactly. Uh, so I kind of, I did want to get a sense of like that, how Austin was, especially in terms of the music scene at that time. Cause you know, that's before I was a, I was a kid, you know, I was born in 91, which I think is around when tree was, was active. Um, so oh, that's yeah. before my time. So I don't have like a full concept of, of what, what it was like then, but like my time is more like this super past decade. Cool, super cool. Harry, uh, I moved to Alston in 1991. So let's have a conversation. Let's do that. Yeah, that sounds but but not to uh, detract from what you were just saying about about your past and and your your journey of healing. Uh, I would also love to hear how, if for you, being part of the Alston music scene at that time, how that related to to what you were describing. It's all connected. And so that's what all I'm doing now 
has roots and my experience back when I lived in Alston and in Boston in general. So yeah, we're all good. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, why don't we start with Alston in the nineties? Let's set, set the scene a little bit. Alston in the nineties was a sort of free punk rock revolutionary paradise, if, if you will. The punk scene, hardcore scene, alternative communities of all sorts were thriving. It was really at the peak of so much mm-hmm. in the early 90s in, in Boston in general. And back in the 80s, which I only got into the punk scene in the very tail end when I was uh, 14, you know, things were dying down with dying, dying down with the really well-known and like historically popular uh, Boston hardcore. And there was a real period of time where a lot of people left the scene, like people who were really before me. And then a whole lot of new people came. And that time period, when I was first getting into punk, in fact, the first punk, uh, ah, yes, the first punk show I went to, or hardcore show I went to, was at the Paradise Rock Club, which is right down the street. Yep. In college and a little after, for about four years, I worked at the Paradise. Very cool, very cool. Scanning tickets. But yeah, sorry. Uh, not yeah, to yeah. so the, the first time I went to a show was uh, in 1989, and it was Wrecking Crew at the Paradise. Oh, sick. But the, the second show I went to was, oh my God, what was the name of the street? Harvard, Harvard Avenue. And also Harvard Ave, yep. The place that was called Bunratty's back then, and maybe it was changed over the years to some other things. I don't know if it's still in existence now. But in the later 90s, I suppose, or in the 2000s, it was called Local 186. But way back in uh, January of, I think, 1990, I went to my second show in, in Alston, which was uh, uh, with Sam Black Church, which I'm not sure if, well, I'm sure you're familiar with them, but. I actually haven't heard of them, no. You're not familiar with Sam Black Church? I am not, no. Okay, well, they were around uh, the same time period as Tree and uh, Wrecking Crew, and actually toward Wrecking Crew's later years. But uh, yeah, I went to this uh, show with a band called Sam Black Church at Bunratty's, and my life was changed forever, as was my life changed forever when I went to the first show to see Wrecking Crew at the Paradise in uh, November of 89. And I was ushered into a community of freaks and weirdos and misfits and punk rockers and metalheads and all sorts of people who are kind of like find themselves and find their way and long before the internet was a thing so i i recall fondly the freedom and liberation that i felt and experienced being a kid being a punk rocker being involved with this this hugely influential yet really hidden like street scene that existed in Alston and in Cambridge as well and in other places. And I can only uh, attest to the rawness, the crude, the raw crude reality of living before the internet in a place like Alston with the art and the punk rock and the, the rawness. Yeah. yeah. Raw as fuck. And um, I miss it. And I'm glad that I experienced it and I'm glad I can talk about it. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a far cry. Uh, Cause you said you hadn't been to Austin in a, in quite some time, right? A few years. Uh, it's been many years. Yeah. yeah many years. That, that's a far cry from what Austin is now. It's a lot of, uh, you know, new condo developments, 
that really people can't even afford. So uh, a lot of the uh, you know long term community is has to move out. But yeah, no, it's it's changed. It's changed a lot. Yeah, a lot of those like I've heard of local one eighty six, but that's even still before my time. Um, wow. It's it's not there anymore. Uh, what is there is um, not in the same location, but right around the corner from Harvard Ave, next to Blanchard's, the liquor store. Yeah, is a Bright Music Hall, which was formerly Harper's Ferry for many years. Yes, uh, I'm very familiar. Yeah, and um, yeah, man, uh, things are very different. Gentrification happened, and uh, Alston was experiencing that even when I was still living there in the '90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a long-term process. It's a long-term process, and it's definitely uh, connected to Boston University. Unfortunately, yep. my alma mater. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because uh, you have um, this this massive gentrification, this like takeover of a cultural mecca. But at the same time, interestingly, Boston University in particular, I think is fair to say, also for better or for worse, let's just call it that way, say it that way, brought so many people from around the world to Boston that mm-hmm. it did enrich the punk rock community in different ways. And it did enrich and bring like, uh, like I want to say like uh, diversity, I guess we can say, um, to the punk rock art, whatever communities back in Austin, back in the day. So it's a double-edged sword, which yeah. of course the, the bad guys won, but <laughs> that process still did contribute to creating something that was uh, magical. Yeah. What was it like going to shows back then? Because I, I, my experience going to shows, and I imagine that this probably didn't change over the years, but the general experience of going to a lot of shows in Alston was that, you know, I'd go and I'd see a couple people I know who were there with a couple people they know. And so, you know, you gradually go to enough shows, you meet more and more people. And even without making plans to meet up with people, you would just go to shows and sort of just run into people you knew and have a good time with some friends in a very spontaneous way. Yeah, yeah. It's fair to say that most of the people I knew, most people I was friends with, I met at shows or regarding shows. Yeah. You know, there's a funny, a funny thing about what friendship is. And you'll you'll appreciate this, I'm certain. Um, You meet people, right? And you develop these connections and we call each other friends. But we actually don't become real friends with most of the people we we describe as friends when we meet them in the context that you're describing. And uh, I would always describe those people as uh, show friends because I always had this interesting life where I felt like I was different from other people. And in fact, I was. And I realized that only certain people could truly become my friend. And Mm -hmm. most people just were in the periphery, but we were all together. And I, and, and I learned that growing up, well, spending my many formative years, formative years in Alston, that there was a difference between friendship and the people I met at shows who were my friends. And uh, okay. that's something I learned, like, in the transient, you know, reality of Alston, mm-hmm. which is you'd go to uh, shows. Transient. I'm glad you brought that word up. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, yeah. I was going to use that word later. <laughs> yeah, so it's transient. And that nature, the, 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 nation, the nature of having a transient community and even arts community and punk rock community 
and that it comes with a degree of hurt and harmfulness as well. And so um, to look at the whole picture, you know, we can view it uh, in one way or another, but the truth is it's everything at the same time. So it has all the good and then it has all the things that come with like social and, and, and radical communities that's not good. And so, yeah, the energy was on fire and it was, I keep saying the word raw because it was raw. Mm-hmm. These are raw times. Those are raw times, meaning like it was fresh. It was real. You would, you knew you were part of something. And I don't want to say it's not like that now because everywhere in the world is different in every punk rock community or every music community or every arts community is as pa- <clears throat> the people in it are as passionate as I was when I was 18 years old, as you were when you were first going to shows. That same reality, that same energy, that same power that comes from within, that still exists, right? Yeah. No matter when you were born or where you live or your, your reality and surroundings. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Because I think it's like passion that comes from the people, like the, you know, the, the residents of the community who are going to these shows. And that's really where, where the energy comes from. It, you know, it gets kind of tough because there's, you know, over the years, so many venues close or change names. Like Great Scott closed, you know, in 2020, unfortunately, which was such a fundamental place for so many years, like including when I was in college and after, like I, that was like the neighborhood spot for me. I would go there like pretty regularly to catch shows. So that, that can be disheartening for the community, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's still, you know, the passion of the people in attendance. You mentioned great Scott and uh, I want to share something just anecdotally. Great Scott began having shows. I don't remember when, uh, at least 10 years ago, but, um, Way back when, I don't remember if it was called Great Scott or if it was called something else back in the 90s, but it wasn't a place where they had shows. It was a bar. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because uh, I had a rough life experience and not everyone really gets this, but especially on holidays like Thanksgiving or Christmas, for example, I never had any friend anywhere to go. I was a kind of abandoned person. Where Great Scott is, where that, that show space was, uh, I used to go there on holidays to eat the free meal that was provided for homeless people. Not that I was homeless at the time, but I wasn't okay. So I'm glad that happened because I would not have eaten like a good meal on those days. So it's a blessing. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you got a meal those days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tr- reality is reality, brother. I mean, the only, all you can really do in this world is speak the truth as you know it. And so, yeah, that happened. Yeah. For real. Yeah. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I ate a good meal that day. Right. Yeah, I didn't know that Great Scott used to used to have uh, Thanksgiving meals. That's that's awesome. As a transient person who's been homeless and who's had lived in all sorts of fucked up situations without without having his needs met, I can say that yes, back way back when, uh, on some holidays, Great Scott or whoever was responsible for that place back then would provide those meals. And in fact, there's places all over Massachusetts and all over the country that did the same thing. I think they still do. But yeah, thanks to Great Scott and whoever was making sure that happened because a lot of people don't have, right? And uh, don't have families and don't have needs met. And I was one of them. So I'm grateful. Very, very grateful. Yeah. No, I I think uh, in Boston still, like homelessness is not an issue that's addressed well on like the, the systemic governmental level. And I think in general, like even today, homeless people are kind of pushed 
out of view. There's a lot of like anti-homeless designs in public spaces, like the tea stations. Now on the benches, they have rails to keep individual seats. People can't lie down on the benches anymore, you know, if they don't have another place to sleep. Just a lot of really small things that prevent homeless people from existing in, you know, public spaces. I don't know. It's kind of, it's very insidious. It's a disgusting thing. And the the additional reality is that a, there's more than enough money and housing for all those people to live in homes right now because there's a, a vast surplus of unoccupied uh, housing. And mm-hmm. the reason why they don't have it, they're not living there is because the owners want to make money. And so they just yeah. sit there empty. But also uh, almost people who are homeless actually bring money in to fund the system because the way it works is that it's much less expensive to get somebody into housing and to have their needs met uh, than it is to have them on the street. So if they're on the street, then every time they go to the hospital, every time they go to anywhere, those bills could get paid by the government back to the government. So that's just a cycle of, of capitalism that homeless people in Massachusetts and beyond are unfortunately used as ways of profiting. And so that's the, reality that's the reality i remember a couple months ago uh, back in october november i want to say um the the interim mayor kim janey uh she like issued an order to to shut down um one of the like the homeless encampment on at the intersection of i believe it was mass ave and melnia cass boulevard there was a, a you know probably i think the largest in the Boston area, uh, like homeless encampment. And the, you know, this woman was mayor for like six months and, you know, her, her most definitive act, her, her big legacy as a interim mayor is going to be displacing homeless people from a community that actually like helped keep them a little safer, you know, marginally. And that, that I felt was just very insidious because we're like, where, where else were they going to go? Where else are they going to go? Well, psych hospitals, medical hospitals, medical hospitals, and uh, jail. Jail. Mm-hmm. Well, they were being temporarily housed in in the jail, um, whatever jail is by is by there. So uh, you know, essentially, they're you're taking them from their settlement and, and putting them in jail, and that you know that's why I use the word insidious. That just I don't know that just doesn't sit right. You have to forgive me. I'm not familiar with this set of circumstances that occurred. Oh yeah, no, yeah, that this is pretty recent too. But it's horrific that that anybody who's already suffered so much to live on the street to then have their homes taken from them. And I mean, what are they supposed to do? You're right. What are they supposed to do? Yeah, and and any the other thing is that any belongings that they might have had in that encampment. Once they, they like they lost that once they were taken, like housed in jail for a couple of days while they were, you know, relocated or whatever. I, I want to thank you for your for your your empathy on this, because you're speaking a truth about what happens to people. And I mean, if you went to Boston University, you had a, a little bit of opportunity in life. And that's great. And I'm glad you have it. And 
to know that and to to describe what's happened to these people as insidious is a, a correct a correct uh, empathetic response because for those who are unaware in the world who are listening and beyond um that's what happens people who have very little to nothing who had lost a little that they have then find some sort of stability of, of whatever degree and then they lose it for arbitrary reasons and then they're supposed to just get on with their lives imagine losing all the things you have and uh then having to just continue and the reason why i speak so personally about this and with, with the passionate uh with passion in my heart is because that happened to me also and um i know we're going to get to it in a bit but i live in mexico now and i don't like to say i lost everything because i do have a storage space with some stuff still in it but i can't really go there so i moved here with nothing and i had to start a whole new life with nothing and so i do relate and i thank you for the empathy that you have for those people because by default if you have empathy for them then you have empathy for me and it means you're a good person in the first place so i thank you harry for all of this and for being you as well and for caring hey my pleasure thank you for saying that craig that means a lot you're welcome but uh yeah uh so now we've been a little little sidetracked from from alston so maybe let's get back there but i i think that was a really uh necessary path that we went down there thank you let's move forward yeah so how does the time you spent in alston in for because now i kind of want to talk about your your writing um because you know that's that's kind of why you reached out you have this this book called um craig lewis's Guide, guide to, to surviving the impossible. impossible. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I have I have all everything written down, but it's just on a different screen. That's cool. Uh, That's cool. Yeah. So Craig Lewis's guide to surviving the impossible. So how does your your time living in Austin sort of inform your writing? Okay. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to just I'm going to speak freely and kind of provide the context and then just answer your question. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So. Um, Thanks everyone for bearing with me. It's a huge honor to reconnect with people from my hometown because whether I was born in Alston or not, that's where I became a, a person. That's where I became a human as far as my, 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 I'm concerned. So when I was 18 years old, I was uh, forcefully uh, placed in a treatment center in Alston after uh, three and a half years of being forced into other treatment centers for uh, problematic children. And uh, I was let loose onto the streets of Alston, even though I lived in this place, without knowing how to have friends or knowing how to uh, communicate with people in a normal way, without knowing how to interact, um, because I was, in law I was in locked facilities for most of my adolescence. And so I was just unleashed onto the street as a crazy person, crazy punk rock person as well. And um, long story short, the entire time I lived there, and up until 2015 as well, which is, I've lived in many places since. Craig, um, could you- I uh, treated- Hey, uh, Craig, sorry to cut you off. Could you just repeat the year? It kind of got choppy a little bit. Ah, 1991. All right, th yes, thank you. In 1991, I was dropped off in Alston, right in the center, right, really, right actually close to where the Grasshopper restaurant is. I lived there. Oh, yeah. Uh, for for a long time but i was living in a treatment 
treatment home, like a residential center, right there, right in the center of that town of Alston. But I was like a kid who had no idea how to be. And the whole time I was there, as I said, uh, and throughout my life until seven years ago, I was taking drugs, uh, psychiatric drugs for conditions I never had. And so um, when I was 18 years old and dropped off at this place and this unleashed into the world with no idea how to be, I was a very uh, harmed uh, adolescent and I was drugged and I was weird and probably creepy to a lot of people and all these things. So my experience of being in Alston was number one, being completely free and liberated after spending nearly my entire adolescence locked up for false reasons, for fake reasons and being treated for mental health issues that I never had and drugged into a stupor. And so everything that I had happened and every interaction I had and every friendship or relationship of any sort that had was included me was under the fog or the illusion of, of psychiatric medication mm -hmm. uh, that was given to me for conditions I never had. And so I was this kid 18 years old into punk music and, and, and everything that was happening at the time on the streets of Olsen and no idea how to be friends with people. And I had no idea how to know people. I had no idea how to do anything because I was like coming out of a treatment center for years. And so um, upon being unleashed into Alston, my entire life changed. I um, discovered cannabis. I discovered going out and partying. I discovered uh, what we used to call stooping it, I think, like like sitting on the stoops. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so my uh, just... A brief aside, when I was in college, my best friends and I started a band and we were called the Stoop Kids because we would hang out on our on our friend Ethan Stoop. And Ethan yeah. actually is is my friend who uh, he does a lot of the audio processing for the podcast. Excellent. So, you know, he'll he'll hear this at some point. So shout out to Ethan. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so, shout out to Stoop Kids. Yeah. And so so that was the first time I ever had a chance to really know anybody. There's really no word to describe the fucked upness of it, but at the same time, it was something. It was something that was unique that I experienced, and mm -hmm. I experienced it as part of this community in Alston. So whatever it is, it was not normal. Whatever normal is doesn't exist, of course, but it was fucking weird and also the best thing ever, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So I was just, it sounds like that was like the first time coming to Austin, the first time you were kind of able to feel part of a community. If I, if I can go that is so far to say correct. that. That is correct. And I can say that through the decades, Alston has provided safe haven for people like me with different sorts of challenges and, and, and hard times allowing for community to exist for many people who never had that. Yeah. And so, so that is what truly Alston means to me. The reality that I had friends and people that I could spend time with, people who cared about me and liked me in defiance of or despite or in spite of 
my challenges, the things that were happening to me that were unjust, the things that were happening to me that people didn't know about and that I couldn't really express because there were terrible abuses. I had friends and people who cared about me to spend time with regardless of everything. And that was what Alston was for me, a safe haven from all the pain and hurt in the world where I could be with people who gave me a chance. Yeah. Amen. And I, you know, even though you're, you were living in Alston, you know, 30 years before I was no 20, 20, um, 30 years ago from now, I, I still think that feeling rings true for a lot of people living in Alston, that it is, it does a f- offer the, the chance to find a place of community. And I, I think that what Alston means to you is that sounds very, very beautiful. You know, that is sort of like the, the real beauty of a place like Alston throughout the years that, you know, as much as some of the restaurants and, and buildings and what have you have, have changed, that is the prevailing spirit that the people who stick around there feel that they're a part of a community, that they're, you know, able to engage with their peers and, and go out and have fun. And, you know, they'll still, you know, experience their own unique trials and tribulations, but, you know, Austin as, as dirty as it is sometimes as as gentrified as it's gotten, it, it is, there is a beauty to it. And I think you've just encapsulated that perfectly. So thank you for that. Thank you very much for that beautiful response. I just also want to say to all the people listening that no matter when you were born and no matter what era you grew up in, that your passion for what you are into, for what you enjoy, for the bands you like, for the things you do, that is, that passion is as real for you as it was for me when I was first experiencing it. And I want you to know that it's valid to like what you like and to be into what you're into, no matter if you found out, found out about things via the internet or you were born after these things happened, or if there are older people who criticize you for things that aren't your fault, like when you were born and how you found out about the cool stuff you're into. <laughs> so please know that I'm a 47 year old punk rocker who's been through living hell. And I can, I can speak to this personally that you're cool, whoever you are and whatever you're into, that's great. And that passion you feel is great. And I, I validate you and you do you, you create, you celebrate, you, you, you do what you do with passion because this is your time. And every time you choose to do something with passion, no matter when you were born or what happened to you or where you're from or anything, you own that moment and you can transform yourself and and your communities into something even more beautiful than they may be now. And I know that because I lived it. I've won, I've lost, I've won, I've lost, and I've continued. And I, I truly hope that is heard by the people out there today, especially after this two years of of madness with the pandemic and now this the world's now in chaos even more just know that you matter and your contributions matter and what you have to say matters and thank you to all the people who continue to this day to make the world a better place and to speak from their heart and to try to do right respect to all of you thank you oh craig that was that was amazing that was beautiful thank you so much um i hope I hope this episode gets a lot of listeners because I think those words will help a lot of people. 
I think that's something that a lot of people need to hear. Harry, I have a secret to tell you. I have a secret. You want to hear my secret? Hey, spill, man. My my secret is uh, that I'm going to spam the fuck out of this because I think it's great. And I, I, I will do my part, <laughs> whether people like it or not, uh, to make sure that this episode gets lost to listeners because um, I actually don't believe in hope. I just believe. And so that's what's going to happen. So thanks for giving me this opportunity to connect with you. And uh, we'll bring some good information to the people of the world. And that's a gift. So I thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, uh, will you uh, read some of your work for us? Yeah. So I'm going to read the introduction that I've included in this book called Your Crazy Volume 2, Firsthand Accounts of Surviving Trauma, Addiction, and Mental Health from Within the Punk Scene. And it's going to take me approximately eight minutes to do that. So is that cool? Craig, uh, yeah, that sounds good to me. Take it away when you're ready. I'm going to read at this pace because I know if I go too fast, it could get choppy. Okay. But if it does get choppy, just like chime in. Okay. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I will. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, my friends. Thank you, Alston Pudding. Thank you, Harry. Uh, this is uh, my contribution to Your Crazy Volume 2, which includes 20 additional punk rockers from around the world sharing of their personal lived experiences of surviving addiction, trauma, and mental health from within the punk scene. Sometime around 2010, I began to realize that I had had an extreme life experience. I believed that if others in my life had been aware of it, there was a good chance they would have treated me differently. I was given the nickname Krusty Craig in the mid nineties. I protested it. I felt like I was being called dirty, not because I didn't care about myself, but because I was gravely ill. I'll handle that bullshit in a few paragraphs from now. It's crazy the shit people think. It was crazy the shit I thought and still think, depending on many different reasons. Fucking A. I was called Krusty Craig because I was an ultra crust punk. The punk rock scene is quite funny sometimes. I remember the first time I heard some jackass whom I did not know utter the words, I heard Krusty Craig did this. Insert crazy story here. I believe it is people like that dude who might really benefit from reading a book like this, especially considering that so many people I once knew, whether we were cool or not, are dead or worse. The first time I found out that people were calling me Crazy Craig was in New York City after giving the second ever punk rock mental illness and recovery talk. The first gig was in Harvard Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and fittingly so, as that is where I truly became a punk rocker. During the question and answer session, one of my most cherished punk rock friends and New York City punk legend referred to me as Crazy Craig. I can remember how it felt. Heartbreakingly, he was correct. I was Crazy Craig. I didn't want to be Crazy Craig. What the fuck? I couldn't allow this. 
I would rather have died than allow this. As the story goes, I had to fight for my freedom, liberty, and truth. Ultimately, I was victorious. That is when the consequences of choosing to be free, healthy, and well reared its very ugly face. On May 1st, 2015, I swallowed my last psychiatric pill. I have not taken a single pill since. My doctors at Boston Medical Center had been insisting for over two years that my only chance at living a healthy life was to stop taking psychiatric medication. They even removed all of the psychiatric diagnoses from my file. Does reading all of this make your head hurt? It does mine. It's fucked up. It is wicked fucked up. In 2013, I obtained my adolescent medical records from the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. It was there that I worked as a vetted statewide staff trainer, as a hand-picked pioneer paid via a private fund to develop and facilitate a novel program in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I spent two years doing this. In those records, document after document, often written in the doctor or clinician's own handwriting, I found the confirming evidence that I was being abused by my parents and that my behavior was a natural reaction to being abused. One specific document, as written by a clinician in their own handwriting, detailed my mother's threat to the psychiatrist. If he did not diagnose me with schizophrenia, my family would file a lawsuit against him. As a result, and as the collection of documents prove, I was given a fraudulent diagnosis of schizophrenia. For the next 28 years, I swallowed approximately 80,000 pills to treat a condition I did not have, as well as for symptoms I never exhibited. I did not want to be Crazy Craig anymore. Over the next few years, beginning in 2015, I rejected the Crazy Craig of the past and I became the Crazy Craig of the present. It is hard enough to live in the world, especially after 28 straight years of heavy drugging and me telling everyone that I was mentally ill. I was proud of living successfully with a mental illness. I was proud of working successfully with a mental illness. I announced it to the world via my punk rock, mental illness, and recovery talks, except I was not mentally ill. Just thinking about this makes me feel crazy. Get it yet? Do you fucking get it? People had a much easier time accepting me and including me when at the end of the day, no matter what happened, the explanation to everything was that Craig was crazy. I mean, he told us. He told everybody. It's cool that he's working on it. We respect him for that. For those unaware, beginning in 2007, I was trained to work as a certified peer specialist, which is essentially a mental health care worker who is open about their lived experience with mental health challenges, addiction, and trauma. I was employed by several Boston-based mental health agencies. The first was CASCAP, then VINFEN. After that, I spent an excellent five years at Bakehof. Unfortunately, 
My professional career ended only a mere few months after being hired by a place with the name that does not deserve to be associated with me. In 2015, after 28 years of daily medication, I stopped taking psychiatric drugs. At the same time, and in my new job, I was paired to facilitate support groups with a man I found creepy and disturbing in a way that unnerved me. This man, my coworker, enjoyed manipulating female patients and support group members into disclosing details of how they were raped for his pleasure. I am the publisher of this book, and I'm using this opportunity that I have created for myself to tell this story in this safe place. That same year, I made reports of what I had witnessed. First, I went to the company I was working for, then to the advocates and community leaders throughout the state. I then contacted Massachusetts government and mental health officials and hundreds of people in advocacy positions throughout the United States, all the way to the United States Department of Mental Health, uh, pardon me, United States Department of Health and Human Services. I did everything I could to let them know there was a man in Massachusetts preying on rape survivors using his role as a mental health care worker. In an act of true punk rock activism, I audio recorded a government official listening to my story. Only after a few questions, he told me that I was a whistleblower and needed to file a lawsuit against several people and organizations in Massachusetts. If you've heard me speak at a workshop or a talk anywhere in the world, you know I write how I speak. I'm not conventional and I am not gonna change. I'm not responsible for having swallowed 80,000 psychiatric pills beginning at the age of 14. I was just an innocent kid. The doctor said I was sick. Fortunately, I escaped the abuse. It is a gift that I'm responsible for healing from the severe damage they inflicted upon me. What I am also not responsible for is the failure of the hundreds of colleagues, advocates, state and government officials of whom I begged for help continuously for years. Was I betrayed? Yes. Did I do the right thing? Yes. If the opportunity presents itself, will I proudly speak this truth? The whole truth and nothing but the truth while dressed in the sharpest and fiercest suit possible? You better believe it, because I do. Fortunately, I escaped the abuse. And yes, it is a gift that I am responsible for healing from the severe damage they inflicted upon me. There is no typographical error here. Indeed, my words are repeated. I now live in Mexico. I spent 15 months crisscrossing Europe and beyond with little more than a tote bag. I told this crazy story, the same one written here in 40 countries. I was homeless and I did do some very unpleasant things to survive. I always knew that one day I would transcend every fucking thing as I prefer to live with that creed as my foundation. And that is the end of the introduction with the exception of credits and my gratitude to the other contributors. And I signed it. Love and Rockets, Krusty Craig, March 23rd, 2021, Pueblo Mágico, Mexico. And that's because I live in a magical town.
a Pueblo Magical, <laughs> a town of magic. Wow. Um, Craig, that was, that was brilliant and amazing uh, and beautiful. And I'm also just struck by, like I caught my, even though you're, you're detailing this, this very difficult personal history and, you know, this history of trauma and, and mistreatment and injustice, you know, I still caught myself chuckling at various times. And I think that takes a, a really beautiful writing style to, to still be able to convey humor like that in the midst of, of injustice and, and trauma. So thank you so much for reading that. That was, that was wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful to hear, but not obviously not wonderful things that you were going through. You know, you know, the, some of the most radical and revolutionary things that have happened throughout the history of the society we live in were the result of harmful things that happened to people who decided that they weren't going to just sit down and look the other way, but yeah. they were going to stand up and say, we human beings have, have basic rights to be respected. And if there are human beings out there who are going to try to trample on the rights of others, and if we don't stop it, when it begins, it becomes what it becomes. And I'm a living example of people not protecting me. And so I could become a mass murderer or a serial killer and go cause harm, or I could become a, hopefully a beacon of light and a beacon of the, speaking the truth that no matter what happens to you, no matter who hurts you, no matter what you did and response to being harmed, because we know also to people who do bad things, right? Well, those people had bad things done to them. We have to keep that perspective. And and all those people out there I'm speaking to, speaking to them, and I'm speaking to you, and I'm speaking to the to the people who don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm speaking to the people who do know what I'm talking about. And I'm speaking to all the people who are educators and advocates and, and, and revolutionaries and feminists and survivors and mental health workers, the people who are the future. Know that these realities exist. And know that you, you can make a difference in this world by listening, learning, adjusting, and helping create a better world for us all. And that begins when people stand up and say enough is enough. So I thank you uh, for your acknowledgement, Harry, and for allowing me the opportunity to share these, these, truths, these truths from my heart. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again so much. I think you've left anyone listening with a lot to think about. And I don't know, I just personally feel very in line with the sense of, you know, we all have a choice in, in every interaction we have in every relationship we have, uh, in every day we're alive to, to be that beacon of light that you're describing. And it takes a lot of, of personal work. It takes a lot of effort. It can be exhausting. It can be draining, but I, I think it's something that we all need to strive for. And we, you mentioned, you've, use the word empathy quite a few times in this talk. And I, I think that's such a critical thing in, in the world we're living in just to, to lead, lead with that. Yeah. Thank you. You're correct. And so people know there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. Mm -hmm. Most people should know, but to just be clear here, when people have sympathy for somebody, they just are feeling sorry for them. I said, I'm sorry you had a, a loss. I'm sorry that happened to you. But when somebody is expressing empathy to somebody, it's saying to them, I can somehow feel what you're feeling in my own way, based on what I know about my own life and experiences. And I'm reflecting back to you 
that that I validate you and that I hear you. And though although I may not be in your shoes and I may not know what it's like to go through these specific things, that I feel your emotion and I feel your the beauty of your heart. And I, I want you to know that I accept you and that I, I have non-possessive love for you because you're a human being just like me. And we may come from different places, have different experiences and different opportunities and, and so forth, but we can relate and connect on what it means to be a human being. And what it means to be a human being in part is that we are gifted and blessed and also tortured depending on how you view the world with the ability and the capacity to not only uh, feel, but to feel and to think, which is a, a tragic combination, unless it's a beautiful combination. And we have to learn as humans how to negotiate a walking that balance beam to ensure that we're always at, uh, you know, at 51%, you know, above zero, so we can continue to live in this world and, and, and not be taken by all the harm, by all the pain, by all the suffering, but to recognize it and to see it for what it is and to take that experience and turn it into something better, not just to help yourself, but to help your friends, your loved ones, your community members and people that you'll never meet. That's what empathy is. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to want to thank you again, because this was such a such a beautiful interview, a beautiful conversation. And I just want to want to thank you for being so candid and open about your personal life and, and the struggles you've been through. Thank you so much, Harry, for your for your genuineness and your sincerity. Uh, thank you to all the listeners and all the people involved with Alston Pudding. Um, because we've, we're running out of time, we cannot get into the other book that we're going to share with you. So um, I'm just going to briefly share the title and the context with you and the contents you can all know. Yes, and yeah. and all also, uh, please mention where, if anyone listening wants to purchase the book, please mention any websites, stores, wherever, where people can order the book. Okay. So uh, the first book was, uh, and I'll send you all the uh, covers so you can share them on the, the website. Yeah. Um, in the links, but Your Crazy Volume 2, there's also a Your Crazy Volume 1. So in total, there's 47 stories written by punk rockers and two books. They're books, they're actual books you can order in the mail. And uh, Volume 3, well, I'm working on Volume 3. So if there are punk rockers out there, from Alston and beyond who would like to contribute, please contact me and we'll provide the information in a second. The second book I'm sharing with you today, just briefly, is what we discussed at the very beginning, uh, The Craig Lewis Guide to Survive the Impossible, which is basically a punk rock, radical trauma recovery guide that I wrote based on my, my lived experience of doing so. And um, just so you can hear a few titles of uh, passages, so you know what this is about. How to forgive the unforgivable because you deserve peace. Harm reduction for complex post-traumatic stress disorder survivors. How to heal from betrayal and find peace in your heart. How to manage public meltdowns. And if anyone remembers back in Ringer Park, uh, Ringer Park. It was <laughs> the mid-2000s when I, Krusty Craig, had a public meltdown in front of hundreds of people. Yeah, I remember quite well. It was one of the worst days of my life. Well, I wrote a book about those sort of experiences, and I wrote a passage with worksheets called How to Manage Public Meltdowns. So if you were witness to that or you heard about it, you're going to want to go to survivingtheimpossible.org 
slash collections and order a copy of the Craig Lewis Guide to Survive the Impossible, along with your crazy volume too, because I am a survivor of these things and I speak from my heart. And that is what I put into this book, my heart. So I hope that all the people in the world who want to make their life better can view me as a person who wants to be supportive of them in their journey. And while I'm an anti-capitalist, you know how the world works. So please go if you choose to and get yourself acquainted with the revolutionary information in, included in these books. I thank you from my heart, Harry. Much love from Mexico to Alston and beyond. Yeah, thank you so much, Craig. And uh, I'm sorry if you mentioned this when you were saying that. Where where can people buy the books? Sanity is a full-time job dot org. Yes, okay. Slash collections. Okay. Yeah, you sent you sent me that link, so I have it. So I'll be sure yeah. to include that those links and you will find lots of books, t-shirts, and more there. Mm-hmm. And if anybody listening to this wants to contact me directly, send me an email at survivingtheimpossible at gmail.com. And if you want to write to me as well and ask for a discount coupon for my website, just write me a message to say, hey, I heard the interview uh, with you and Harry on Alston Pudding, and uh, I'd like to have that 15% off coupon, and then I'll send it to you right away. Awesome. Yeah. I I think uh, anyone listening who was moved by your word should hop on that offer. Sounds pretty good. All right, everybody. There you have it. That's my interview with Craig. If you're so inclined, you know, Craig offered a little podcast discount, you know, that it feels like we're like officially a podcast. Like we have our like discount code now. If you want to get Craig's book, uh, The Craig Lewis Guide to Surviving the Impossible you know, kind of in the self-help category. And you, we could all use a little self-help now and then, right? So last week when I put out the episode, I um, put a little, on Instagram, I put a little link for people to to donate to Planned Parenthood. I think the recent Supreme Court decision is terrible. I think everybody should have the right to make decisions, informed decisions about their own body and their own personal health. And everyone should have access to, to safe abortion and contraceptive methods so uh you know you don't have to donate to Planned Parenthood specifically through us you can find there's a lot of abortion funds by state I I saw a list of that it was a collection of abortion funds by state I'll try to post that with some of the material this is a this is a pro-choice show you know I, I haven't really gotten political or like moral at any point but just i'm just gonna lay that that one right out there so please uh donate if you are able to to planned parenthood abortion funds yeah anyway thanks for listening this week um i will be back next week with marise a pop singer from montreal who will break down her newest album, Eight, track by track. So stay tuned for that. It's uh, This album just came out. It's one of my favorite releases so far this year. Get listening. You'll hear it next week. Anyway, have a, have a great week. Uh, take it easy, y'all. Bye.